do remain standing and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. We're looking this morning at verses 43 through 52. If you don't have a Bible, there is a blue ESV Bible right in front of you, hopefully, in the pews there. You can grab one there. Let's ask the Lord for His help before we hear God's Word read. The rules of the Lord are, sh- are true and righteous altogether. Father, cause us to see their truth and righteousness, we pray in the name of Jesus and through the Spirit. Amen. Mark 14, 43 through 52, hear now the word of God. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi! And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. And be seated. When you hear the word exposed, the title of this sermon, you're likely to think of it in one of two ways. The first kind of exposure is the uncovering of some person, some company organization whose evil was veiled for a time. Journalists pride themselves on performing this much-needed duty for the public. Some in the church have uncovered the wickedness that formerly lurked behind closed doors. You don't have to travel far back in time to see dark deeds that are now brought to light. Perhaps you might think of the recent exposures of men Ravi Zacharias and Mark Driscoll. One man lived a lie proclaiming the gospel to the nations and prostituting himself to the same. In Driscoll's case, it was only a matter of time before his abusive leadership caught up with him. In both instances, someone, some people, some organization laid bare the issues of their sinful hearts or the good of the church. The second kind of exposure is making known something good that was once hidden. This is the task of teachers and professors across the world and many others as well. Over the course of a semester or a year, these teachers, professors have the privilege of making known to their students what is hidden. Not, of course, to the professors, but to the students, that these students might grow and might mature. Some teachers live for that aha moment 
Perhaps it is for that moment when everything clicks that the professors will endure the untold trials and many challenges that every year brings. And in these verses, we see both kinds of exposure. On the one hand, we see Jesus exposing the hypocritical hearts and actions of both Judas and the Jewish leaders. On the other hand, we see Jesus, the good teacher, expose the people to the truth about himself. And he did so all the while enduring the many trials and troubles that paved his road to the cross. Let this text be plain to everyone. Without Christ, everyone would forsake him and flee from him. Look again at verse 43 with me. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. In these verses, Mark is revealing the objectionable nature of the hearts of sinful men. Mark moves from slow motion to a sense now of urgency, of, of haste. He is rushing us to the cross and doing so here through the road of betrayal. Judas's betrayal. The hour of the cross has come through the horrific ways of this son of perdition, this man of destruction. The one on whom eternal woe will rest is now set to bring woe upon the Son of Man. His betrayal is all the more traitorous when it is seen in the light of his actions. First, he calls Jesus rabbi, teacher. And this might mean nothing to those, to others who have also called him rabbi, that they might ensnare him. But it's different. It's tragically ironic when it is uttered from the mouth of Judas. As you know, the rabbi was the reverent teacher of just a handful of disciples for a time, until perhaps they would become the rabbi. And what did Jesus teach Judas? Through three years of day-in, day-out ministry, Jesus taught, with both words and works, the way of salvation, the only way of eternal life. This is what he taught him. This is what he taught the other disciples. What else could you teach that is better than that? Now, I know, I know. Every teacher has his or her own field, and every teacher loves what he is teaching and says, this is the best thing for you, students, whether she's a math teacher, he's an English teacher, this is what you need to know. You can, you can check out in all the other classes, but this class you can't check out. You must know this material, this English, this math, this art, this pottery. You must master this. And of course, we commend teachers for their passion and we would want nothing less than a full commitment to the field that they are teaching. Those areas do not hold a candle to the light of the word of God that Jesus, the, t- the good teacher, is teaching Judas and the other disciples. Now, there is an idea out there in education circles that says that the failure of a student should be attributed to the failure of a teacher. Teachers will often adopt this idea, well, I have failed him. If I had just done fill in the blank, it wouldn't have turned out so bad. 
If I had devoted more time to this area, then she wouldn't have failed. And truly, teachers can grow in their craft. They can grow in their commitment to the subject they love teaching. They can certainly grow in their concern for their students, their compassion for their students. There's no doubt about that. Everyone has areas in which to grow. But still, this theory operates under the false view of the good-heartedness of students or of the moral neutrality of students. And the truth that perhaps any honest teacher could tell you is that there are just some bad students. In fact, every student is a bad student apart from the grace of God. If we really know our doctrine of sin, there's no exempt. Everyone depends upon the grace of God. And that dependence, of course, affects how he is a student. And it's not that these students are simply misunderstood, though some are. It's not that these students are crying for help, though some of them are. It's not that they have a bad home life, but some do. No, it's that some are flat-out malicious, and some do intend evil despite their teacher's self-sacrifice. I know this. Some of you know this. You poured out your soul. You poured out your very life for them, and they say, who cares? I'm going to make this year a living hell for you, Senor Mock. Shall we say that the good teacher... Jesus has failed Judas here in instructing him in the ways of eternal life. His three-year student, shall we say, Jesus was derelict in his duty to instruct? God forbid. The light shone upon Judas. But Judas preferred darkness to that salvation light. It was this student ultimately who failed his teacher. And yes, that is a thing. I understand that this generation... Seems to rule that out as a possibility altogether, that a a student could fail his teacher. But I know, at least in my time, and I'm not very old, as you can see, I know that it was in part my responsibility as a student to please my teacher, to do the things that my teacher asked me to do, because my teacher knew better than I. And I was not the teacher. She was. He was. And when I got a D or an F, which was more common than I had wanted, because of my own laziness, when I failed, my parents didn't say, well, how dare that teacher? No, it's, Michael, why did you not put in the work? What's going on? How could you do better? Not, teacher, how could you do better? Things have changed, haven't they? Judas failed Jesus. The onus, the the problem, was on Judas, not on Jesus, who clearly taught day after day, clearly taught the way of salvation. And his final act of betrayal, Judas's, is couched with the language of teacher-student intimacy. His intimate word was surpassed by an even closer act, the act of a kiss. 
It doesn't take much sense to see the intimate connection between a kiss and a closeness. The scriptures speak of this intimacy in Song of Solomon 1, 2. It says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. That's the right attitude that any spouse ought to have for his or her spouse. Oh, let him kiss me. Let her kiss me. Come together. Or in the New Testament, Paul and Peter will apply that kiss and say there's a holy kiss. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss or greet one another with the kiss of love. Know that even though I'm not with you present, Physically, I am with you in spirit. I am close to you. Be close to me. I'm praying for you. There's that closeness. As you know, the Christ was kissed before when that sinful woman wiped and kissed Jesus' feet. What an act of love that was. But rather than a sign of love as intended, the kiss from Judas was one of hatred, of betrayal. Now, what does someone do when she hears another person cursing? What might she say? She might say, do you kiss your mother with, the, with that mouth? Oh, I sure hope you don't kiss your mother with those lips. How dare you speak like that? How dare that come out of your mouth? That's a dirty mouth. It needs to be cleaned. How much worse that Judas kissed the Messiah with that mouth. That he landed, those lips landed on the light of the world. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy, the proverb says. Oh, the hypocrisy of Judas's heart that night. Could it have been any worse? Suppose not. William Grinnell, the Puritan, says a false friend is worse than an open enemy in man's judgment, and a hypocritical Judas more abhorred by God than a bloody Pilate. A traitorous Judas was. Through it all, however, do you see the son's resolve? Do you see his calm? Do you see even his kindness? He who just hours before said to Judas, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now let's Judas see him in the garden rather than cloaking himself in the darkness. He lets Judas walk over to him, call him rabbi. He allows Judas to come and burst the bubble of his personal space and to get closer and closer and place his cheek against his. And then those treacherous lips on his. I have no doubt that we would push our betrayer away. If our betrayer would, would dare to come close to us, say, get away from me. Or if we had friends, we'd say, he's the betrayer, get him, pounce on him now, and, and take him away. But not Jesus. Not here. Not now. What composure the son showed. What strength of spirit. What love for his Abba, for his father. And what love for us. That he would endure that 
awful act of betrayal for us, who are at times similarly betrayed, certainly not beyond measure as it was here. Dionysius of Alexandria says, How magnificent is the endurance of evil by the Lord. What perseverance of the Son. And of course, Judas brought his new friends to the party, didn't he? He brought the Sanhedrin. He brought all of those religious leaders. Their wish was Judas's command, and now they are ready to pounce. Chief priests, scribes, the elders, the makeup of the Sanhedrin, that that final, full, supreme court, if you will, set to squash the sun. And they came with much help and armed at that. They came with soldiers. And John tells us that there was a Roman guard, dozens if not over a hundred men, who were ready to stop this supposed coup before it began. It's a lot of people for one man. And a few disciples, unarmed, except for maybe one guy. Well, one guy was armed, as we know. Although the Son had done many mighty works, these works were for good, not evil. He healed people. He kicked demons out of people. He fed The leaders treated him as a threat and brought the supposed necessary manpower. One man commented, How absurd and hypocritical it was for the foe in the hour of darkness to pounce upon this good shepherd, from whom no one who heeded his message had anything to fear, and who taught people to love their enemies. Oh, the hypocrisy we see here in Judas and in Jewish leaders My point of application, we see that hypocrisy is to be exposed wherever it is found. Thomas Brooks says, A hypocrite may offer sacrifice with Cain and fast with Jezebel and humble himself with Ahab and lament with the tears of Esau and kiss Christ with Judas and follow Christ with Demas and offer fare for the Holy Ghost with Simon Magus. And yet for all this, his inside is as bad as any of theirs. A hypocrite is a Cato without and a Nero within, a Jacob without, and an Esau within, a David without, and a Saul within, a Peter without, and a Judas within, a saint without, and Satan within. Hypocrite looks good on the outside, but his inside is full of death, pollution, hostility to the ways of the Lord. Pray for your own hypocrisy to be exposed before your face. Pray that the Lord would humble you. These men were not the only hypocrites. Whenever we do or say something that is contrary to the word of God, knowing it, whenever we try to present ourselves as better than we really are, We are committing hypocrisy. We are showing our hypocritical hearts, and we need to be shown that more and more. 
We need to be more and more humbled and pray then for that exposure. Pray for the Holy Spirit to expose your sin, your hypocrisy to yourself, that you might confess it, that you might repent, turn away from that, and turn to the exaltation of Christ, to a contentment in Christ. Pray, show me, Lord, where I have worshipped you in flesh, where I have worshipped you in falsehood, where I have not worshipped you in spirit or in truth. And as you have opportunity, expose the hypocrisy of false teachers and combat it with the truth. Hear your elders when they perform this duty, at times from the pulpit, at times in an ABF lesson, in a covenant group lesson, and elsewhere. That's part of our responsibility to protect you from the wolves in sheep's clothing, to tell you to be watchful of error. Say, no, that, that path is the path of the wicked. Don't walk on that path. This is what many in our denomination have sought to do with some of the elders who say one thing, but then say or do quite another in another context, contrary to the gospel. There are many presbyters, many elders in this denomination that are seeking the purity, the peace of the church. And that, in part, means exposing the hypocrisy of some, exposing the sin or calling them to account for their contrary ways. This is good for you. This is love for Christ. That's sin exposed. And we, as we continue in verses 48 and 49, we see the son exposed. Jesus said to them, have you come out against as a robber? As against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. We expose hypocrisy by showing error with the light of the word of God. A couple of things take place here which are recorded in John's gospel, just not in Mark's, that show us that Jesus is still teaching, even after he has been seized. And the first is when he's asked if he was Jesus, he says, I am And you'll recall from John's gospel that all the guards fell down backwards. I don't understand how anyone could get back up and approach Jesus after that. When when hit with the great I am, I say, yeah, let's arrest him anyways. It shows the ingratitude. It shows the contumacy. It shows the rebellion of these individuals. They didn't know clearly, with whom they were dealing. And second, after Peter, now Mark says, one of those who stood by drew his sword. If you read John's gospel, it's Peter who drew the sword. And he cut off Malchus's ear, who is the servant of the high priest. And after Peter does this, Jesus heals the man, restores the man. What a kindness he showed to his enemy. And so he shows himself to be the Lord God Almighty who has come to save the world. Yes, there will come a time when he comes in judgment. But he was showing very clearly that he was coming to save. 
And anyone who has ears to hear, who has eyes to see, can come. And pray that you would have those eyes. Pray that you would have those ears to see and to hear Jesus the Christ. Nevertheless, the people here are set on putting an end to the sun. Their course is unchanged. And what he says next then exposes their hypocrisy by exposing his way of ministering. He says, day after day. This is a daily exposure. Day after day, the son was teaching in the temple. They had more than one chance to confront him. Jesus didn't dine and dash. He didn't hold a one-day seminar and then leave in the middle of the night, not to be seen as a quack. He didn't do that. He stayed and he taught day after day. He taught openly. He wasn't lurking in the shadows as a robber would. Some of you know that the Mock family acquired chickens, seven then plus two, now nine. Had ten, one died, but that's beside the point. We got chickens, and they're fun. But our neighborhood, at least for a brief time, also unwittingly and uh, unwillingly acquired a raccoon. This little thing is absolutely adorable, and I was thankful I was able to take some pictures. And if I didn't have chickens, I assure you, I would have that, um, I would be like Buddy the Elf, if you've seen the movie Elf. And he sees a raccoon, he says, oh, look at you, you know, give me a hug. That's what I would have done. But now I have chickens to watch after. And he was watching after my chickens. And one time, it was actually during teen group, actually, sitting on the armchair, and I gave uh, one of the Basie kiddos the responsibility of um, keeping watch of the backyard. And here is this raccoon who is behind the fence, and he's up on the trees. The tree is going to, you know, branches out. They've got two large branches, and he is just uh, being a gymnast raccoon that he is, I guess. He's got one leg on each, and he's has just peering through, and he's like, I want those things, and he slowly comes down the tree, and he goes towards the fence, and he then climbs up the fence, and then Lucy says, there he is. So I had a salt gun that I came running out. I did not shoot him. Okay, let the record state. I did not shoot the raccoon. I I shot up in the air, okay, to scare him off. Get out of here, raccoon. And he ran off. He bounded in the forest. And I think that did the trick. Never saw him again. That was a long way of saying that Christ is not like that raccoon who sought these chickens with stealth. That's not what Jesus did. He taught openly. He wasn't waiting for the religious leaders to go to bed that night before he then brought out you know, to the people to teach them the real truth. He didn't do that. He says, here's the word of God. Here's what my father has, has given me to give you. And we often hear people say, if you're going to say something, just say it on my face. Some of us don't like that. Some of us prefer it. But Jesus says, fine, I'll say it to your face. I'll say it to the crowd while you are surrounding the crowd. I will let them know and I will let you know where you have erred, where you have sinned, where, where you are abusing the word of God. 
and thereby abusing my people. He called out the scribes in the presence of the scribes. He let the world know the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He let the world know the error of the Sadducees. He combated error with the truth. He says, this is the wrong way of thinking about things. Here is the right way. It's black and white. Very clear. The sun does not deal with ambiguities. It's a clear way. And yes, he exposed the folly of the world, but he also exposed the world to the Father. He came to make known the Father. He came to reveal the being and character of God most clearly. That's, what John, that's how John begins his gospel, that the Son has exegeted the Father. That's what every minister, every Bible student does with the Scriptures, comes to draw the meaning out of the Bible. The meaning is already there studies the word of God, draws it out, brings it to the people. The son did that as far as the father is concerned. He did that to the people. This is why father is like. This is what salvation is. And as the sands are exposed during the low tide, the son still exposes the heart of God during this low point of his humiliation. And all the while, we see the Father is intent on fulfilling Scripture through the suffering of the Son. One way we can apply this is by following the Son's way to attack error, the hypocritical ways of the world. How do we do this? How do we refute the folly of the world? Well, it's not by following Peter's lead. It's not by wielding the sword. Wielding the sword of the flesh, as he does in verse 47, draws a sword and strikes the servant, cuts off his ear. As much as we might want to burn down all of those Planned Parenthoods, with no, when no one is in the building, of course, as much as we would want to do that, our weapons of warfare are ministerial and declarative. We take the word of God and minister it as a good to those who would hear it. And we declare unashamedly, what the Bible says. This is where we stand. We don't come to any apologetic or evangelistic encounter with guns, with bombs, with knives. We don't come with weapons of the world. We come with something much stronger. We come with the word of God. We fight by the sword of the spirit. We fight by the open statement of the truth. We fight not with clubs or swords, but with the words of Scripture. I saw recently that a Reformed pastor in the area boldly went to a brewery that had just hosted the night before a drag queen hour. And you only have to travel 40 minutes one way, and you'd see this brewery. And this drag queen hour was open to adults, but also to children, because why would that not be a child event This pastor might have wanted to set ablaze that brewery, never again to promote the creation-denying, God-denying sexuality. But what he does instead is he comes and asks for the manager and asks what the manager thought about the previous night's drag queen hour and how the manager could have care for children or care for the city in which this brewery resides. How could he care for that? How could he care also for the word of God and host 
such wickedness. He didn't come with a knife. He didn't come with a bomb. He came with scripture and with a calm demeanor, but also one that is steadfast, the word of God. And then he left about five minutes later because he was soon kicked out. And that's, and that's the way things are. Sometimes people will hear, and sometimes people will reject. But our approach in all of life is to take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. We don't have to necessarily confront every narrative, well, anyone who, who does wicked things. We don't have to go to every shop that you know, has, supports this agenda that you don't like. You don't have to do that necessarily. Though might, the Lord might give you a boldness to do it. But you can start with your own sin. You can start with, again, asking the Lord to show where you have sinned against him and where you have believed and promoted error in your relationships, in your teaching, how you conduct yourself. And ask the Lord to combat that with his spirit-inspired word. Let's turn finally to verses 50 through 52, perhaps the section that you are most confused about, as I am. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Although we are called to follow the Son in the way just described, shame at times gets in the way. This piece in the retelling in in Mark's gospel, is unique to Mark. It's quite strange to our ears. Here we have someone, a follower of Jesus, who's running around the Garden of Gethsemane with a dangerously loose linen cloth around his body. This linen is a piece of clothing that was likely uh, worn by the wealthy, and it's wrapped around his body to suggest he's, he's not properly dressed, which suggests further that he was probably rushing to the garden. He left in haste. The word young man is typically used to refer to men in their prime, so to mighty men. So here we have a likely reconstruction of how things went down that night for this young man. He's in bed. He's at rest. He sees Judas with the band of soldiers, the Jewish leaders, and he quickly clothes himself, wraps that linen about his body. He heads off to the Garden of Gethsemane to warn Jesus and his disciples, but it's too late. And so he too flees. The soldiers are coming after everyone who is associated with Jesus. They don't know who is who because it's dark. There's not, there's not light. And so they try to catch anyone that they can. And one of them gets a hold of this man's garment and he escapes just barely, but naked. Who is this man? Have you wondered that whenever you've read through the Gospel of Mark? Who is this young man? Of course, theories abound. But most likely, this is actually Mark, the author of this Gospel, John Mark. It's what the early church fathers believed about the identity of the man. We also know that this man's mom, Mary, was in Jerusalem, and their, their, ha- their house was the base of operations for the disciples. In Acts chapter 12, for instance, P- 
Peter, having escaped prison, knows to go to this house, which is Mary's house, which is Mark's house. And that's where he finds refuge. Indeed, this house could have been that house to which Jesus had directed Peter and John for that Lord's Supper meal. And if so, then Mark clearly knows where Jesus and his disciples were to be found, where they were headed. It wasn't a secret, per se. The disciples knew that's where Jesus frequented. And if this man is Mark, then it makes sense that only he would include this in his gospel. Because it is a rather shameful scenario he finds himself in. Because it involves nakedness. And nakedness and shame are often connected. We saw this in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed before sin. They were fully enjoying one another. They were enjoying the Lord. But from the start of sin, nakedness now screams for clothing. It screams for a covering. And so they tried to clothe themselves. But their clothing was insufficient. That's why the Lord provided the garments of skin from animals. In Nahum, the Lord connects the two shame and nakedness, when he pronounces judgment on Nineveh. In chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Behold, I am against you, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. A nightmare of many, perhaps everyone, is that they're in a room full of people, and they are naked, and everyone is looking at them and pointing and laughing Perhaps you've had that nightmare. Because in nakedness, all of our imperfections are exposed. Everyone sees what we would like covered up. And they're not as accepting as our spouses ought to be. That's actually why, um, that's why nakedness is reserved for marriage. Because when we say, I do, we are accepting all that the person is, including those imperfections. And so there is then no shame to be had in that relationship. The Bible is replete with language of covering one's nakedness. Shem and Japheth covered their shameful father's nakedness when Ham exposed it and was cursed because of that exposure. What Mark is getting at here is that everyone forsook Jesus. Everyone fled. And so everyone is exposed for their shame. All have fled. And then all alone again is the son in the hands of his enemies. This is the illustration of Proverbs 24.10. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. All forsook him. All ran away from his presence. Which presence is to be prized above all? They all fled. They all forsook. We're not talking about merely a geographical separation. We're talking about a mental distancing as well, a soulish distancing, a relational break, as these disciples' preconceived view of the Messiah is crumbling to pieces. He's not the man they thought he was. So let's get out of town right now. Joel Ellis, a pastor in Arizona, says, when you run away from Jesus, you always run away naked. Indeed, shame covers you. Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. 
leaving his garment behind. But he was closer to the Lord naked than these men were to Christ clothed. Remember, Joseph says, how can I do this thing and sin against my God? I'd rather be naked and obedient to God than clothed and rebellious. Joseph ran away from evil, whereas they fled from the fountain of goodness, the spring of life. All forsook him, all fled. The most outwardly faithful forsook him. The most sacrificial fled from him. Indeed, the most mighty let him alone, fulfilling Amos 2, 16. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. Dear ones, our strength is in the Lord who made heaven and earth. Be wary of empty boasts of faithfulness instead of true bravery before men. Don't simply talk a big talk. Pray for biblical bravery before men. Be wary of vainly professing Christ instead of truly confessing the Christ before men. A lot of people who profess the name of Christ. But when push comes to shove, literally or figuratively, they fail to confess the Christ. Be in prayer that you would not faint in the day of adversity, that your strength would be big, that your strength would be large, that it would be God-given. Because you cannot find any comfort in your own steam, in your own strength. And so be comforted that he remains committed to you, that even when we are faithless, and how often we are, he remains faithful. The son remained faithful to all of his fleeing disciples that night. And be clothed by his garment of righteousness that is glorious because it is bloody. Blood from the Lamb of God. He was naked so that we would be clothed. He bore the shame of our sins so that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Father, with the word just preached and through the power of the Spirit, we pray, deepen our fear of you, that our love, affection, and obedience may endure forever. In Jesus' name, amen.